begin by saying thank you to each one of you for being here and for practicing as beautifully as you have practiced. And um, in hearing me say that, you might totally discount those words because your mind casts back over the stay and your meditation practice and how many hours you've slept through the practices or how many plans you've made um, about your future or about what you're going to say. And, um, and including all that, including all that, is still um, this incredible gratitude. And I say that because I know, we know, what it means to live in a culture that doesn't see our humanity. And we've experienced it in different ways. Some of us as women, some as queer women, some as trans or inter, um, or um, uh, bi, or as... um, um, challenged in terms of our physical ability or our age, either as very young or older or as, um, as people of color. We know what it means when, when we're not seen. And when, not only are we not seen, but when violence is directed towards us. And I wanted to frame my Dharma talk in this wider context. Growing up in South Africa and experiencing the violence both directed towards Africans, who indigenous Africans, and then also white activists, I lived as a daughter of political activists who were deeply committed to ending that kind of harming. And it was very, uh, very inspirational to watch my parents' incredibly courageous actions. My father actually engineered prison escapes for some of the African leaders um, pretending to be an English, um, an ex-English army colonel going on animal hunts. And the prison, the the African leaders, ANC leaders were were his servant helping him in the back of various VW cars that, that, whose license plates kept changing. And, um, he risked, so he risked his life many times over um, for that. And um, my mom risked her life going into African townships to teach minors to read and write. And they, they were in prison and then in hiding. And I also experienced incredible violence in my family from both of them in different ways. And it was those two experiences 
that I think have been the root of the inspiration in my life. In understanding that awakening, this liberation struggle that we are moved to, has to be integrated. That it isn't just held in one arena, that it needs to include both the structural, we need to change systems that don't reflect our humanity, we have to um, um, change um, cultures that don't acknowledge our beauty and inherent dignity, we don't have to but we're called to, and we're also called to the individual transformation that needs to take place as well. And one can't happen without the other because if it does, one or the other ends up being distorted. So that the liberation struggle in South Africa, which was so beautiful, now expresses not that there isn't a, a wonderful change that's happened, but also it's expressed in even more poverty. I don't know if you know that, but the majority of Africans are poorer now than they were under apartheid. And that's because the Mbeki and the people who initially took power were very into supporting an economy that didn't redistribute wealth. And so the politicians most of the African ministers spend millions of dollars in very, very fancy hotels and driving cars. And that happens because there isn't this kind of ethical and spiritual work that has gone along with the structural changes that needed to happen. And if we do just the individual work, which many of, um, many of um, the <coughs> which has been a tendency in some of our Buddhist cultures here is to is to name um, liberation work just as individual work. It means that in the Theravadan monasteries in in Europe as well as in Asia, there's incredible sexism and homophobia because the structural level is not addressed. Or there's racism in our own communities here, within our sanghas. So, so this talk, I wanted to place this talk because it's been feeling increasingly important to me to place what we're doing here in a context that this is one part of our work, and it's not all of it, and we kind of know that already. Still, it bears naming and stating again, because it's sort of easy to gloss over sometimes in, in some way. And, um, and I have such a thirst for awakening and expressing that awakening in all levels. In acknowledgement of that then, in walking into this room, 
I feel so moved because I know that this work that we are doing contributes in a big way towards that liberation movement, that we can't awaken without doing this work. And when I, for some reason, as I was brushing my teeth before coming here, this, uh, you know, it's the mind, the, maybe because I'm in pain so much, I, my gums were bleeding. And so the thought was, you know, wow, I wonder if this is sort of significant of something very serious. You know how your mind goes. And then I thought, well, even if it was, and even if I knew I was going to die really soon, I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I'd want to be here because what we're doing here feels so important and really so magnificent because it is about transformation and awakening. And there isn't anything it feels like more important than committing ourselves to this, um, the healing, the healing of our world, the healing of ourselves. Acknowledging the beauty of ourselves and acknowledging the beauty of the world and finding ways to live within ourselves and between ourselves that reflects that. So thank you. Thank you for all your efforts today. And then just to say one other thing in relationship to that, because when I went on my first retreat, it really did feel like nothing happened. I went um, in 1979 to Ruth Dennison's meditation center in Joshua Tree. She's my root teacher. And actually, I, I feel like saying that that retreat was a hell realm doesn't even come close to describing how incredibly awful it felt, you know, and how hard it was. And at the end, of, I would have left actually, if I hadn't carpooled down from Mendocino. <laughs> so I did carpool down, luckily for me, and uh, I vowed at the end of the retreat that I was not going to ever go back because it really didn't feel like anything but a huge struggle um, of sleepiness and distracted mind and incredible negativity and tears and feeling very angry with Ruth, who I felt was a control freak. <laughs> and um, and <laughs> so when a friend, Helen, a mutual friend of uh, some, uh, at least one someone here, um, s said to said to me, uh, "We're going down to the women's retreat at Roots again." I said I didn't want to go, and they happened to drive to where I was living, which is a piece of land, to drop something off. And they were in the car all packed. And I said to them, and it just came out of my mouth, wait, I'm going to go and grab some t-shirts and a pair of shorts, because in those days we sat with t-shirts and shorts, um, and I'm coming with. And I say that because there, this movement that we've acknowledged of love, that, or of presence, or awakening, that is at the heart of life is, is 
there for each of us and is moving us, otherwise we wouldn't be here. It's there already and I couldn't feel it as that and I couldn't name it, but it did direct me and it felt like even against my will to go back to that retreat. And I hated it again. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe the problem is the teacher. And so <laughs> I tried a different teacher. I tried Goenka. I don't know if any of you have sat with Goenka G. But if I thought Ruth was bad, Goenka was <laughs> definitely not a good fit for me. And here's the amazing thing, and maybe it's partly because I'm such an aversive and resistant personality. I, I, I was like, that's it for the Dharma. I was a feminist, and, and I thought the Dharma was very conservative, and I was a Marxist, and the Dharma didn't resonate with me at all. And yet, I went back for a fourth retreat. And I'm in awe of that movement because it carries us. It carries us that, that wisdom that's already lying inside of us. And so that feeling that you've had of being exhausted or distracted or that the whole thing is pointless actually doesn't mean that it's pointless. There is something going on even with those experiences. And that something going on continues to build and create the conditions for the openings that we experience. And in the openings, then, there's no doubt anymore. So, so thank you again for being here. This path is described as um, suffering and the ending of suffering. Uh, in my last home in Northampton, Massachusetts, I had a Buddha in the living room and I had this dirty piece of paper that was uh, attached to the Buddha from many, many years saying suffering and the ending of suffering because it describes in just those few words this whole path and feel so profoundly beautiful. One, to acknowledge the reality of our experiences, and I want to read this, um, uh, this poem by um, Lana Holstein. Eyes narrowed and heart constricted, I look about to see how to blame you. It must be your fault that I am not happy today. Where are my flowers? Why is there not enough money for me to be expansive, extravagant in my true nature, stuck on the thorns of anger, preferring to sit wide-bottomed on the stoic cushion of disappointment, my fingers wrapped around the mug of steaming circumstance? I sip its poison of powerless broth and continue to die. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that because, you know, often when we feel 
caught. When we feel like that feeling of being imprisoned in, and really isolated, and that's come up um, quite a few times in the, in the group that, that I was in, that feeling of being isolated and separated, of not feeling seen, of, of um, feeling contracted or invisible, of feeling obsessive and compulsive, of feeling out of control, of feeling hating, um, of, or of being caught in any of these energies, it often feels as though somehow it's just us. Because the nature of having these, of experiencing these energies is that they are isolating and separating. That is one of their qualities and characteristics. And so we feel alone in these experiences. And, um, and it's so beautiful to have a spiritual practice that actually acknowledges this and says, this is what happens in our minds. This is not just a personal problem. This is an expression, a universal expression of one aspect of the universal mind that we live individually. And it feels just in extraordinary to actually acknowledge it and to say, wow, this isn't my personal problem. I, I'm res I have the capacity to heal it, but it's something that we all experience. And so when I first, um, when I first heard it, it felt very liberating. And I um, contemplated one of the experiences I had that was very profound for me, which was I had polio when I was six. And this whole part was paralyzed, my mouth, my palate, down into my digestive system. There was an epidemic in South Africa. A lot of people had polio. And um, because they didn't really understand it at that point and how it was transmitted, they put me in a room, because I had a particular polio that kills rather than um, just attacks the muscles. So they put me in this little room. Um, and I was alone for months and months, and they wouldn't allow my parents to visit. And because it was an epidemic, the nurses were also very busy, so I was alone, <laughs> alone and dying. The only way I could understand it was to think that maybe I had done something really bad, or that I was really bad. And for years and years and years, I lived with that understanding that inherently there was something wrong with me. And that's just a small example or, um, of something that each one of us has experienced in some way or another, experienced something and this mind taking it in a certain way that brings such deep suffering into our being. So, um, so acknowledging our suffering and the ways that we've lived with suffering. And then what's so beautiful is that in, at the same time that we acknowledge suffering, we acknowledge the ending of suffering. And this is a poem by um, uh, 
nun, a Chinese nun, Dawu, who lived from 1854 to 1927 in the Wantong Jiawen um, province. She says, The 10,000 conditions of the world have all dropped off. All that is left is this true heart-mind invoking Buddha's name. With a single invocation, I transcend the bitterness of this world. Greed, anger, ignorance and desire are completely uprooted. In complete and naked purity, I dwell in the tower of radiant light. Having realized the Dharmakaya, I am free from the wheel of suffering. Once I fulfill my vow to attain the perfect purity of the land of bliss, I will return to this world of suffering to liberate all sentient beings. So beautiful. And then here's another expression. Finally, this is from Thomas Merton. Finally, in our vision of creation as God's gift of love, we also find that all beings are created in single communion of love. When we say that all creatures are created in communion with each other, we're not speaking of a sentiment, but of a fundamental disposition of being for others. We exist for the benefit of others. All creatures are created free in order to give themselves to others. Love is the heart and the true center of that creative dynamism, which we call life. Love is life itself in its state of maturity and perfection. So, it's just so beautiful. So the Buddha acknowledges both our suffering so beautifully, and then the ending of suffering so beautifully. And he says there are eight fields of practice which bring about the end of suffering. Wise um, understanding, understanding the world correctly, wise intention, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness and wise concentration. And I wanted to talk about um, wise effort or um, right effort. And in right effort, he says, abandon what's unskillful. I wouldn't ask you to abandon what's unskillful if I thought it would bring you suffering by abandoning what's unskillful. But I see through my own experience that by abandoning the unskillful, we bring happiness to the mind. Cultivate what's skillful. I wouldn't ask you to cultivate what's skillful if I thought by cultivating what's skillful it would bring you suffering. But I see that it doesn't bring suffering, and so I ask you to cultivate what's skillful. And um, one of the things that is most helpful for me in thinking about um, what's skillful and what's unskillful was actually studying the Abhidharma, which is the study of um, the nature of consciousness. And um, 
said that in a second there are thousands upon thousands of moments of consciousness, each arising in our mind. And in each moment of consciousness, there are these particular mental qualities. Some happen um, um, as neutral expressions. So for example, contact, when a f something comes into the field of our vision, there's the mental quality of contact that, that, that is that there is this impression made in the consciousness that knows there's something in our visual field. So something is neutral um, like that. There's also the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral in each moment of consciousness. So there are seven, um, um, what's, what are called seven universal qualities which are um, karmically neutral, contact, feeling, perception, volition, one-pointedness, and attention. So I'm not going to go into those um, a lot. Then there are um, <coughs> 10 unwholesome or unskillful mental um, qualities that sometimes come in a moment of consciousness. Greed, wrong view, conceit, hatred, envy, avarice, worry, sloth, torpor, and doubt. And there are many others that we could name as well. These is what the Buddha named. What is fascinating about looking at these qualities and how they reside in each moment of consciousness is that whenever any one of these energies arises, like greed, say, um, or let's not even say greed, um, Let's just say, um, and, um, what can we say, worry, you know, worry. So, <laughs> so for example, I notice worry coming up sometimes when I'm about to fly. Just the subtle anxiety about getting to the airport on time and not missing my flight. And it really feels as though if I worry enough, it will actually help me to get to the airport on time, <laughs> for example. So what the Buddha says is that all these energies actually have as their root delusion, shamelessness, fearlessness of wrong, and restlessness. I think that's totally fascinating because what he's saying is that any moment where there is greed or hatred or restlessness or envy or jealousy or anger or fear, at the root is delusional wrong view, which means that we're not seeing the situation as it really is. That is so profound, isn't it? Because it means that we're that we have this tool to help us disengage from these unskillful energies that the Buddha is asking us to renounce in order to end our suffering. So, for example, just a, 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 another example, I, have, I moved here and I mentioned that all the boxes that I had um, all my stuff in that I packed before I went to the monasteries for two years, and they stayed packed. 
because I wasn't sure if I was going to live here or on the East Coast, resided in the basement of some good friends of mine. And when I finally decided to move here, I was so excited because I hadn't lived with any of my stuff, my artwork, my clothes, my books, my Dharma talks. I'd been sort of living as um, in two suitcases for one and a half years since I left the monasteries. And I was so excited, I paid $2,500, a lot for me, to bring all my stuff here. And I started to open my boxes and they were all moldy. Everything was moldy. My friends who had said they would run the dehumidifier hadn't run it as much as it was needed and everything was moldy. So I went through a number of, of different responses. Uh, and, um, and, I, and actually I'm still, I still vacillate between grief and renunciation. So um, what I went to an eco place because I'm chemically sensitive and I got some enzyme and I, was, I had a lot of stuff actually, uh, someone here was helping me, um, spraying enzyme on pieces of furniture and on some of my beaded work and some of my art and some of my pictures and all the stuff. And it was out, it was out in the front yard. Well, I live in Oakland and it didn't necessarily feel that safe to leave everything out. So I was just hanging out there. And I, my roommate came by and I, um, on her way out, and I said to her, could you just hang out for a minute while I go inside to the toilet? And she sort of hesitated and said, well, I don't know. And I said, just 30 seconds. And she said, oh, okay. And then I was like, God, you know, here I am going through this whole thing and I'm asking her, because I haven't asked her for anything, just for a few minutes. And she's like, I experienced her so tight, you know, and you know, she's not that generous. So my thinking goes. And um, uh, so anyway, she, she, comes, she comes back and I say, you're free to go. And it wasn't a very nice interaction. And uh, so I noticed this inside of myself, and I was like, well, I'm not feeling very friendly towards her, and so there must be delusion in my mind, because there's some aversion, and if there's aversion, there's delusion, which means that I'm not seeing the situation correctly. But how am I not seeing the situation correctly? Because it really feels like I am seeing the situation correctly. She wasn't being that generous. So because I have a lot of faith in the Buddhist teachings and I've gone through this, this cycle so many times, I thought, well, I'm going to invite her for tea. Because we hadn't seen each other for weeks after this interaction. And so I invited her for tea. And she said, oh, thank you for inviting me for tea. And I said, you know, I just want to check in with you about what happened. And she said to me, you know, I feel like I've really been working with my codependency. I felt like for years, whenever anyone asked me for something, I always said yes, even when it didn't feel like it served me. And so I've, I feel like I've been practicing saying no. And I just feel like I'm on this boundary of feeling maybe I've swung too much to the other side. <laughs> and that, you know, that maybe, um, you know, that maybe I can open up again. And I was like, wow, 
you because I got to see, and it was so beautiful that in that moment of her saying no, she was catching herself and she was, try she was turning this corner of no to a yes. And rather than seeing that, which was so beautiful, I had just reacted out of not seeing the situation correctly. That's why these this understanding is so beautiful, because we are so called to the truth and to seeing the truth. And one of the characteristics of all, all the characteristics of not seeing the truth are these unskillful energies of mind. Another way to say it is that when we are in suffering, we are in suffering because we're not seeing the truth. It's profound and so liberating because the Buddha is actually giving us tools to begin to inquire into, well, if I want to end my suffering, how do I go about it? So, once I acknowledge that if I'm experiencing any of these qualities, then I'm in suffering. And if I'm in suffering, then what do I do? So he asks us to renounce. He asks us to renounce these energies. What does renouncing these energies mean? It doesn't mean repressing them. It doesn't mean dismissing them. So what does it mean? Going back to my roommate, the first step is actually letting go of our stories. It's whenever we have this energy in place, there is a storyline, some kind of storyline that's associated with it. So my storyline was that she wasn't generous. As long as I had that in place, there actually was no movement inside of me to address it. The first step is to let go of our storyline. Some of you, I don't know, have any of you sat with Upandita, this wonderful Burmese teacher? So he, he says, there is no thought worth thinking when you're on retreat. There's no thought worth thinking. That's another way of saying drop your storylines. <laughs> what I have noticed, and I, I've really sort of taken that, that up diligently when I'm on retreat, but what I've noticed when I'm not on retreat, is that if I ever thought more than three times, guaranteed I'm in suffering. Subtle suffering, and guaranteed that the root of that story is an unskillful quality of mind. So when I have a thought for more than three times, the invitation then is to drop the thinking, is to drop that thought, and to see and to inquire into what is the unskillful quality that's feeding it? And then to actually be present for that energy. So, I don't know about you, but I have a lot of friends who are sick. I have a number of friends who have cancer at the moment, and, and I've, with one in particular, particularly been present with her. She has, um, she has uh, tumors in her liver, and um, she's been in, a, so in that process. And I 
notice the quality of my presence when I'm with her. She's in fear, she's sometimes in terror, and I'm right there, you know, right there. Of course she's in fear and terror. It's a pretty scary process to be sick, to face our death. And I don't ask for her not to be in terror or fear. I don't actually ask her to change. I'm just there as her friend, you know, holding her and sometimes massaging her, sometimes I'm making tea for her. That quality that we have when we are with someone who's really sick, you know, or a pet that's really sick, that undivided attention and caring to that suffering, we have the capacity to turn towards ourselves. So when we say be present for that greed or that hatred, we're asking for that same capacity to be present in that way. Oh greed, honey, I'm here for you. Oh bitterness that you didn't give me more time, you know, while I'm so overwhelmed with my stuff. I'm here for you. That 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 sense of being alone in that moment and not being met by my roommate. Honey, I'm here for you. In that meeting, there's something that, there's an, that a touching that happens where the intensity and the naughtiness, the tangle of that begins to dissolve. In the dissolution, we touch our own intimacy and kindness and love again. And out of that intimacy and love comes the movement forward to address and heal the situation. So our diligence in working with the breath and walking and our diligence with working with the pain is the grounds for creating this capacity to turn and companion our experience, especially the unskillful experiences, so that we might create the space for love to grow inside of ourselves again. So in that, in that dissolution that happens, and sometimes it happens the first time, and sometimes it takes a thousand times. There's a saying in the Dhammapada, um, the Buddha said that this path is like fighting an army of a thousand, single-handedly a thousand times over. And actually that's how it feels. It feels that each moment there is this invitation to take up the challenge of allowing the unskillful energies to be met in this way and abandoning the storyline, abandoning believing them, and cultivating the beautiful qualities of mind.
One of the um, one of the reasons that I had faith in this process was from watching some of my teachers, and one incident particularly comes to me in terms of this um, this quality of intimacy and caring that grows when we abandon the unskillful qualities is the uh, genuine generosity and loving-kindness that so many of our teachers, um, not share, live. One, one um, day when I was feeling a little downhearted, this is early on in my practice, maybe it was like four years into my practice, I went to the post office when I was living in Mendocino, and there was this um, envelope and it had my teacher's handwriting and on inside of it was a check that said, I had this dream that you were running short of money and so here's a check for $200. Just this incredible movement of a teacher, you know, of my teacher. When, you know, I was like, oh, I have, you know, it's me that should be supporting my teacher. And yet here she was, feeling this movement to give um, because it, that's what came into her heart. And I'm also reminded of a story of Deepamart. that her picture is in that little hut, you know, on the path of, um, of our teachers. Uh, someone, a young uh, Jewish man came to see Deepamart and was talking about how upset his mother was that he was in India and exploring Buddhism and the spiritual path instead of going to school and becoming a doctor. Um, his parents were poor and had worked really hard in the hopes that their son would do better than they had. And they had really worked hard with this dream that their son be a doctor. And so he was telling her about this. And then went on his way and came back a number of months later. And Deepama went under her bed and got um, all, all, her, all her money, um, all her rupees, big bundle, because, you know, there's like, I don't know now how, how many rupees there are to a dollar, but it's usually a big bundle, and said to him, take this money and buy your mother a present that she might feel more at ease with you. This movement of the heart and of the beautiful qualities of mind that manifest in each moment as an expression for the ending of suffering. It's not just the end or ending of suffering, but this movement to want to heal, this communion of love to reach out to serve, to support the flowering and the easing of our lives, to touch whatever would be bring most beneficial results into, our, into life. That's what we're doing here. That's this practice that we're doing. And I can't think of anything more beautiful than that, of dedicating our lives to abandoning the unskillful so that this energy of wanting to serve and of wanting to bring about these beautiful results because our hearts are open. There's nothing more beautiful than that. And so 
again, as I as I started this evening, I want to I want to um, I want to honor. That's what the the blossoming is of all these efforts. And um, I think I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I visited a, a young well, she's not young anymore, a woman who I lived with when I was a teenager. Um, in, we moved to London from South Africa, and our house was a kind of um, holding house for people who had left South Africa, who were coming out of jail, and so there was a sort of constant stream of different people living with us. And, and this one woman was living with us because her parents, were, South Africans, were in, were in transition. And she said to me when I visited her, you know, Arena, you really used to be a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I, not to say it in, you know, not to say it as a putting myself down, because I'm not. I just want to acknowledge that in growing up with a lot of pain in my family, both internally and outside of myself, that I defended myself, and I defended myself by being really angry and shut down. And that is the only way I knew how to do it. And it's really amazing to me to sort of contemplate myself now and to, to say, you know what, I'm not a bitch anymore. <laughs> I, I just see these, that, that that movement doesn't happen so much, and that rather there's more love. And, and I say that because when I was in my 20s and I started to look at myself, it felt so intense, the negativity, that the only way I could see to escape it was to kill myself. I didn't see a way out of it. And so, I, I didn't. I feel incredible gratitude to this capacity that each one of us has to transform those energies from the isolation and constriction they bring, that feeling of hopelessness and there's no path to, wow, there is a path and not only is there a path, but the results of this path bring such profound healing and well-being. So um, um, there's a um, um, Robert Aitken Roshi describes it this way. He says, "When you reflect the infinite number of happenstances that coalesce to produce you." then you understand how unique, how precious, how sacred you really are. Your task is to cultivate that precious, sacred nature and help it to flower. So may each one of us continue on the path of abandoning all that is unskillful or of abandoning our suffering, of ending our suffering, and of cultivating the good, of cultivating our well-being, our capacity to live in communion with love, 
with intimacy, with the movement to serve, to create harmony and well-being. May this movement manifest on all levels, personally, interpersonally, culturally and structurally, so that all parts of life are awakened. Thank you. So we have